0: Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember when I first started telling people I was in biomedical engineering, they immediately thought of prosthetics—that that, you know, making artificial limbs and things—was biomedical engineering. Well, I guess you watched you know the Bionic Man or something, and you figured that that's where they came from. And I was trying to explain to them that it was you know making sure technology was appropriate for use in the hospital, which I would really now call clinical engineering, you know, and then biomedical engineering—you know—now has all sorts of different branches to it. You can have medical device development as part of biomedical engineering. You can have tissue engineering and biological engineering. Uh, and now, of course, digital, digital health is huge. That's also clinical engineering. So it's a broad spectrum. You know, It's a lot broader than it appears on the surface. Let's put it that way.
1: Jeff, when do you think barcodes were invented? I believe barcodes were invented in
0: about uh, 1960 or 65, and the first uh, barcoded uh, stick of, I think it was Wrigley's Juicy Fruit gum, went through a scanner in about 1972. I think that's right. I should know this. I and spent years messing with
1: barcodes. That's, that's exactly why I asked you that question. And now I want Juicy Fruit. Uh, this is not a podcast about Juicy Fruit. Oh, uh, listeners, welcome to It's Smith, the podcast where we chat with founders physicians, investors, inventors, health journalists, and your occasional Olympic hopeful. My name's Jeff, and today we have with us the inimitable Jeff Oshman, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Claris Healthcare. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Jeff. It's nice to have the same name. Makes it easy to remember. Uh, Frankly, I think that you're the most more efficient one because you've got one F instead of the two I think that extra F is a bit too much sometimes. It's redundant. Yes, there you are. It is redundant. It is definitely redundant. Um, So let's jump right into things. Jeff, you graduated from UBC and you decided to, as one does, look in the newspaper for a job and found one as a biomedical engineer. So back when you graduated, what on earth was the role of a biomedical engineer for a hospital?
0: I had absolutely no idea when I applied for the job. Uh, You know, the backstory here is that... uh, The love of my life had just uh, started medical school and i thought whoa biomedical engineering at a hospital ah then i could be working in the same places or that would be cool uh so i applied for the job they were looking for a phd in biomedical and clinical engineering now i had a newly minted bachelor's degree in engineering physics so close enough you know i mean why not anyway so i applied for the job and much to my shock and surprise i got on extremely well with uh, dr jimmy kewen who's head of the biomedical engineering department, BGH at that time. And uh, he gave me the opportunity to jump into medical device field. The role originally was uh, safety testing and qualification of medical devices for use in the hospital. So basically anything that had an electrical cord on it, we had to safety test it to make sure it was safe to use in the hospital and properly grounded and all that kind of thing. And to be perfectly honest, it was really kind of boring. (laughs)
1: However- I won't tell.
0: Yeah. I mean, but something really interesting happened. I mean, as, as a new minted grad from engineering, you know, you, you think you know it all. And uh, we're looking around at the technology in hospitals. And that was, that was such a tremendously interesting time to be in medical technology because these new computerized things were starting to appear in the operating rooms and you know, in physicians' offices, stuff that these glowing red LED numbers. And for the first time, I guess in history, physicians had no idea how this stuff worked. It was a totally new field of science. You know, when you're talking about a retractor for surgery, it's basically a bent piece of metal and, you know, they get it. I mean, they can look at it and they, they know how that works. But when it's got glowing numbers on it and little beeps and words, it's like, I'm not really sure what's going on in there. So, for the first time, engineers were sort of welcomed into that world and, you know, acknowledged that we had something to contribute to help the medical profession do its job. And for it a newly uh, graduated engineer, it was like walking into a candy store because you're looking around and saying, well, you know, I could put a computer in that and I could do an electronic sensor there and I could do all this high-tech stuff and, and make this all better. And it was
1: just so many opportunities. So wonderful time here. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to foreshadow things a little bit, not everything has an electrical cord when it comes to newly invented biomedical devices anymore. So that's something that's changed in the past little while. But to kind of jump back to your story, how has the definition of biomedical engineering in your perception changed since you first took that first job?
0: Well, yeah, it's really interesting because I remember when I first started telling people I was in biomedical engineering, they immediately thought of prosthetics—that that, you know making huh. artificial limbs and things was biomedical engineering. Well, I guess you watched you know the Bionic Man or something, and you figured that that's where they came from. And I was trying to explain to them that it was you know making sure technology was appropriate for use in the hospital, which I would really now call clinical engineering, you know, and then biomedical engineering. You know, now has all sorts of different branches to it. You can have medical device development as part of biomedical engineering. You can have tissue engineering and biological engineering, uh, and now of course digital digital health is huge, and that's also clinical engineering. So it's a broad spectrum. You know, it's a lot broader than it appears on the surface. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. So it definitely has evolved quite a bit in, I guess, in the course of the years, and it seems like it's diverged quite a bit as well as technology has advanced in many different realms. Mm -hmm. Um, but speaking of many different realms, you went on to, I guess, invent many different things. You're known for being a serial inventor. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the first thing that apparently you worked on, according to the digging that I did, was, uh, you worked on the first robot specifically designed to assist in surgery. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved from from where you started? Yeah. So this is another great story. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Jim McEwen who gave me the job
0: as clinical engineering role at VGH. And after a couple of years, I, as I said, I was getting a little bored. And so I uh, went out to lunch with him and I said, I've decided to go back to university and do a PhD in applied physics. And he says, oh, well, you know, that's great. And continuing education is really good. But, you know, I just pulled together funding for a new project where we're going to apply automation and robotics technology to healthcare, and I thought you would probably want to lead that, but no, you should go back to university and study some more. And well, maybe you could help me find someone else to lead this. Well, you know, I'm like, yeah, I can feel my arm this being guy. twisted up behind my back, right? You know. So, I mean, needless to say, I stayed with Jim, and they founded a company called Andronic Devices, and we launched into applying robotics and automation to healthcare. That was that was the mandate. And what came out of that was in uh, March 12, 1985, I think it was, we first used a robotic device to assist in knee surgery. It held the patient's limb in position during and under voice control, which was pretty insane at that time, uh, and and manipulated the limb during knee surgery. Now, we would love to claim that we were the first time a robot was ever used in surgery, but that happened two weeks before we did. It happened down in Long Beach, California. And, but we still get a good claim out of this because down in Long Beach, California, they had used an industrial robotic arm. It's called a Puma robot arm, a very high precision arm, to position a probe in a patient's brain during surgery, which was a pretty cool application. But they beat us by two weeks. Otherwise, we could have said we were the first ever to use a robot in surgery. But we were two weeks later, but we were the first robot that was specifically designed to be a medical device, not an industrial robot that was you know co-opted to hold something steady and in the operating room. But uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. And uh, looking back on it now, we were completely out of our minds. It was, uh, uh, you know, this big apparatus with pneumatics and hydraulics that moved the patient's leg around under voice control from the surgeon. Now, you got to remember, this is 1984 or 85. 84, we yeah. started work on it. 85 was the first clinical use. Uh, and we were using two top of the line, high powered IBM PC computers running at 4.77 megahertz, that would be 1,000 times slower than the the, uh, the the thing in your phone now. Right? Yeah. So a fraction of the computing power you have in your pocket. Yet we were doing full-on voice recognition and full-on machine control for a, a robot mm-hmm. you know, with those those devices. And we used it in about 250 surgical procedures, uh, You know, imp- obviously improving it and going through various generational things. It was a mm-hmm. great idea if you wanted to employ engineers because it took two
1: engineers in the operating room to run this thing so what was the reaction to that if if you just added more people to to make sure that the uh the i guess specific technology worked more i guess worked as you wished it to uh when there were already retractors or medical students or residents to hold the like as you wanted to what was the reaction to surgeons in the room
0: well, the, the, the surgeon in the room was part of the project. So, you know, the guy who was oh. responsible for using it was Dr. Brian Day, the infamous broc- Dr. Day of Camby Surgical Center, a longtime friend. Uh, so, it was it was fun. It was exciting. It was uh, cool technology, but it was not practical by any stretch of the imagination. It uh, it made no sense, to be perfectly honest. Uh, in fact, we have, we have a lovely National Geographic video. Of the robot being used in the hospital, and the voiceover has this this one line in it, which is absolutely hilarious. Without the robot, the limb would have to be held steady for 20 minutes at a time. And going like, okay, well, if the objective is to hold something steady, what do you need a robot for? A robot's job is to move things around, <laughs> you know. And it's like, ah, uh, yeah, this actually never made any sense. But there you go. You know, I mean, it was it was a technical achievement that I'm, I'm still incredibly proud of. I mean, we were so far ahead of ourselves, but. It was not in any sense practical and and no, you know, no practical robot came out of that kind of work until 20 or 30 years later, right? You know, it, you know we're now seeing robots that are actually doing surgery and the like, but um, yeah, what we were doing was quite removed from that, but we didn't learn a lot about it. And, and you know, again, t- tipping on the fact that what was really needed was something that held stuff steady during surgery. We ran out a whole range of different uh, positioning devices, like I'll call them, that, that were, Designed to hold things steady rather than move them around, and we, we launched I don't know three or four different projects that were based on holding things retractors and cameras and you know various other instruments and things during surgery, mm-hmm. and some of those were you know mildly successful.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So you went on to invent multiple other medical products apart from the ones that powered neometri- uh, Neoteric and claris what were your favorite other inventions
0: wow my favorite well the one that was most challenging and interesting was i invented a new type of dermatome you know a device for, for making thin slices of skin to treat burn patients and that got me into the burn ward which was the most horrific thing i've ever seen in my life and gave me a real motivation to try and do anything to reduce the suffering and kind of surgery uh that yeah that was really a challenge i mean what what constitutes sharpness what constitutes uh, Good cutting, you know i mean it's it's really tribology's not a not an easy uh, easy thing, you know, so that was that was fun. Um, yeah, I guess the other uh, other patent that I have i've got twenty six u s patents or something basically one or two of which have ever made any money. the rest make great wallpaper but the uh, uh, the other one that i'm quite proud of was uh, we invented a system for managing donated mother's milk uh, in <laughs> uh, uh, donor milk banks and worked with uh, hospital in santa clara california on this Uh, and bottom line is the best possible thing for newborns is genuine mother's milk not formula not other stuff and the santa clara hospital had moved to a program where they asked mothers who could to donate excess milk that they kept in a milk bank and they gave to neonates particularly premature babies and oddly enough funny thing a woman who gives birth prematurely her milk is ideally suited for premature babies. I wonder why. You know, I mean, evolution, maybe there's something to that, right? Uh, anyway, they they uh, used 100% uh, natural mother's milk and they reduced the rate of necrotizing endocolitis essentially to zero in the hospital. And wow. You know, I mean, that's as horrible disease as, as it sounds, you know, for, for me. So uh, one of the things is it has to be treated with all the respect of any food stuff and fully tracked and, you know, Make sure it's handled properly and everything really like that. So we did a barcode-driven software package to manage that mother's milk, and we ended up uh, donating that to hospitals in the UK and Australia as well, and quite proud of that. I thought it was a lot of fun and a really, really worthwhile. And after a little baby, so I like it.
1: Yeah. You seem to be a guy that that's really, really, really into barcodes, and <laughs> that seems to... <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. So here's the reason for this. And this goes back to uh, when we we first started Neoteric, which uh, back in 1997 was the first company that I started my own, co-founded with a friend of mine. And uh, we had decided that we were going to improve the safety of blood transfusions in hospitals. Now, for those who are old folks like me, you may remember the 1999 or 2000, there was a report that came out in the United States that said, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were being killed in hospitals every year due to hospital errors. <clears throat> we became convinced that a lot of those errors were misidentification. So, you know, a, a blood sample goes down to the the lab and it's assigned to the wrong patient and therefore the wrong decisions are made and you know, so on and so forth. So we decided that the the thing to do was to have machine-readable wristbands in the hospitals and machine printed because the standard of the industry Certainly, in the National Health Service in the UK, where we were working at the time, was ballpoint on a sticky label stuck on a bracelet, handwritten. And, you know, I mean, those standards of whether it's first name last or last name first or whatever, it was just, you know, whatever somebody wrote on there. And you're making critical healthcare delivery decisions based on the information. So we became evangelists for having. Uh, machine printed wristbands with machine readable codes on them. Of course, the easiest one to use was a barcode. So we began barcoding wristbands. And once that was in place, we were then able to do things like uh, our blood transfusion safe track system, where we were able to scan the patient's wristband and the blood bag barcode, and just make sure we had the right blood for the right patient at the right time being delivered in the right way, which obviously will help prevent accidents. So that's how we got into barcodes. And Ever since then, everything needs a barcode.
1: There we are. That's fair enough. How many barcodes do you have at home? Oh, God. I can't even count. I mean, they're all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> <You know,
0: laughs> they're on the back of my business card. But <laughs> so, you know.
1: Fair enough. You're the barcode yeah. guy. So, yeah. I mean, like you, you end up founding or you end up producing um, an incredible or helping the healthcare system take incredible stuff forward in standardizing... Uh, quality of care. Was it a smooth path or were there bumps along the way in terms of uptake?
0: There were a lot of frustrations along the way. You know, I, I'll never forget uh, uh, going into a hospital in, uh, I'll, I'll say, north Northeast London, I won't name it, where we were trying to convince them to buy this patient wristbanding barcode printing thing from us that we were pricing at, I think, about 10,000 pounds for the entire hospital and you know, all, all the different admission points of the hospital. And we went to somebody called the risk manager and said, this will be safer for you. It should come out of your risk management thing. And she looked at it and said, yeah, well, this is a really clever idea. I can see why that would work. And she says, I've written three checks this morning to pay off lawsuits, essentially, uh, that uh, are more than that. But I have no budget for anything. It's just like, yeah, it's so frustrating. You know, it, it's this, uh, you see this a lot, not just in healthcare, but everywhere. That You know, not my job, not my problem. It's like, well, you know, can we think a little more broadly, please? Yeah, a lot of, lot of resistance. and I mean, one of, the key, one of the things in healthcare, which I always caution anyone who is trying to launch a new business and saying, oh, I'm going to go into healthcare. Well, it's hard, and it's hard for a darn good reason. You know. And it's like, imagine this. You go to your doctor and he says, I've got this spectacular new treatment I've come up with. Would you like to be the first to have it tried out on you? And of course, the answer is, uh, no thanks. Come back after you've done 20,000 patients and you've seen how it goes, right? So, by the very nature of healthcare, it's conservative, it's careful, it's slow to make change and stop and check and make sure this is working. So, you know, it's not as easy as saying, eh, just buy this new video game try it out if you don't like it, chuck it. I mean, it's just not that easy. You know, so as a result, it's, it's a, a challenge to get uh, adoption of new technologies. And if it's a radical new technology that really changes things, even more so. So, that's the nature of the work, the nature of the business.
1: Mm-hmm. You eventually did obviously get uptake. What in particular drove that uh, you know, hockey stick? Was there a particular change in the way that you pitched or was it just general environmental factors that helped you move the process along?
0: Well, we ended up getting a lot of evangelists within the healthcare space, particularly the National Health Service in the UK, who you know, would stand up at conferences and say, why aren't we doing this? You know, there's no risk, it's common sense, and you know, that kind of thing ultimately ended up being published as an NHS standard that, you know, that was the expectation that that would be, you know, table stakes was a machine with barcoded wristband. Uh, and it, that's just the way things go. You just need to be convincing and and take the wins where you get them and publicize
1: those and, you know, talk about why it's a good idea and keep working. So you've uh, not to spoil the rest of the story, but you've ended up, uh, I guess doing more work in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. Um, how has, oh, and Goose has crept into the picture again. Uh, how has um, the picture of selling to healthcare systems changed between then and now or has stayed the same?
0: Uh, I, I would say the caution has stayed the same, you know, and yeah. the reluctance to be blamed, you know, like, you know, nobody wants to be blamed for the bad decision or the, you know the choice of a medical product that ended up causing all sorts of problems so you know there the same cautions there but there is certainly you know, over the arc of my career the acceptance of technology in healthcare of course has just taken off it, it's it, it's hard to imagine how low tech stuff was you know in in 1970s 1980s and how high tech it is now i mean everyone everyone would be shocked and horrified if they walked into a hospital and saw 1970s technology be like, what are you doing? It looks medieval.
1: Can you describe what it was like back then? Because I'm someone that was born in the end 90s, so I have no perspective. Well, back then, there was basically
0: no computers. Like, you know, it's a, uh, There may have been a hospital mainframe for some highly sophisticated record keeping of some sort, but the average uh, physician had no contact with a, with a computer or any computerized device. There was very little in the way of electronic sensing i mean i guess uh, electrocardiogram machines and monitors were around but it was all pretty simple stuff uh no pulse oximeters for example that was a new new thing coming along no automatic blood pressure monitors that was a new thing you know there's just all the stuff we take for granted i mean you you walk into a physician's office now they have a little cart that's doing miraculous measurements on you right then and there in in a matter of seconds none of that was available blood pressure was little and, and a little cup and stethoscope and, you know, an auscultation of the rat cough sounds. And that was the only way to do it. Uh, and now, you know, we take it for granted that, you know, I can get all out on the air <laughs> and my wrist, right? So uh, that adoption of technology across the board is, uh, uh, it's ubiquitous.
1: It's a normal table stake. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.